Prime Minister Boris Johnson reveals the plan to release England from lockdown, a new scheme that allows thousands of Hong Kong citizens to relocate to the UK, and Brazil's Folha de São Paulo newspaper turns 100 years. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. So hello and welcome to the latest edition here on Monaco 24. I am Marco Sipi joining you from Midori House Studio One. And today I'm joined by Monaco's own Tom Edwards and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome to the programme, both of you. Tom, if I may start with you, how wild was your weekend? <laughs> uh, well, I can only, you can only imagine, Marcus, uh, in sort of miserable, overcast Walthamstow with the kids in tow. Oh yeah, it, 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 was, it was a big one, all right. All right. Fernando, any any highlights from the weekend you'd like to share with us? Well, something major happened, Marcus. Oh, it, really? It, it was, well, you will see why it's major. Basically, I've changed from my kind of heavy duvet to the light one, which means <laughs> it's springtime. Yes, it's that was the weekend where it marked the beginning of spring for me. I feel like we are seeing the beginning of the spring, sort of, looking at today's news. Obviously, big news here in the UK is that Prime Minister Boris Johnson has revealed his plan for lifting lockdown restrictions in England. Having said that, it will still be a pretty long wait until pubs, restaurants, gyms or hairdressers get to open their doors. What was announced today is that schools can reopen next month and up to six people or two households will be allowed to meet outdoors from the end of next month. It's a very careful approach and a bit earlier today, Monocle 24's health and science correspondent Dr Chris Smith explained the steps the British government is taking. Let's have a listen. As the politicians have been keen to emphasise, it's more about data than dates this time. It's about taking a scientifically informed approach and stepping back gradually. Those were the words of Chris Whitty back in January at the Downing Street press conference because they recognise this is still a pressure cooker. If we take the lid off too quickly, it is just going to boil over all over again. So it's very important to have a strategy in place that means we do step back gradually and effectively, rather than just send traffic into the mud, we build the road and we allow the cars along that road at the rate at which the road is being built. So in other words, we do things steadily, we do things gradually, continue with the vaccine rollout, and that means that for every day that goes by, an extra half a million people will have been vaccinated and therefore protected in the country, and that means we can afford to do a bit more because we have protected people a bit more, and it's all about balancing that risk. Dr. Chris Smith there. Tom, what are your thoughts about the approach the British government is taking at the moment? There was obviously a lot of criticism earlier that the government didn't listen to scientists. However, it now seems that, as Chris said, the exit from lockdown is more about data and numbers than about dates that have been set beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's instructive that they are so committed to this idea of going with the science, going with the data. And, you know, one of the other criticisms, Marcus, as well as not doing that enough throughout the last 12 months, has been that there hasn't been real clarity about the road ahead. And I think we were all waiting for uh, the announcements this afternoon with some degree of caution because Boris is, you know, he's not a details guy, but they've been pretty clear. And I think actually there's lots to uh, commend them for in terms of the ambition that they've laid out, which is exactly as Chris said, to be very structured, very disciplined with sticking to the science. Um, but also, you know, the idea now we've got a, a date in sight. You know, he's talked about what, whatever it was, the 21st of June. 
potentially being the earliest date at which all measures will be lifted. I mean, at the height of summer, the idea that there could be a date, you know, there could be this 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 old normal, if you like, and there's now a bit of a time frame on it. And yet, at the same time, it, it feels realistic. It's it's stretching over over months, not weeks. I think it's a reasonably positive day as far as the UK is concerned. Fernando, do you think this is something that people really needed, this structured approach, some kind of an idea of of what we can expect in the future if everything goes according to plan? Or do you think people are too tired in the UK now to follow these latest instructions? No, I, I, I agree with Tom. I think now I like that the government changed its tone a bit. I mean, they're not like promising too much in terms of dates. They're giving kind of some indication uh, and they are looking at the numbers, you know, before announcing or promising a bit too much. So I, I think actually the UK is, is, is in a good good path when it comes to COVID-19 and it's been some sort of a good asset for the country as well. It, it is improving uh, the country's image because of the number of vaccinations. Of course, not everything's perfect. There's been a lot of mishandling uh, in recent months as well. The number of deaths is, is huge. Uh, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's definitely in the top five uh, countries with highest uh, deaths per capita. But but I kind of, I like this new approach. I mean, mm. we have to wait and see for uh, the announcement later on. But, you know, I'm, I'm also positive. Tom, the UK's approach when it comes to handling this pandemic has been shambolic the least. And as Fernando mentioned over there, the death toll in this country is one of the highest in the world. However, looking at this vaccination rollout programme and its success, do you think do you think what happened before has been forgotten or forgiven now looking at the success of how many people are getting vaccinated? It's over 18 million people in the UK at the moment. Yeah, look, the numbers are impressive. And I think there's clearly been a very successful approach to the vaccine rollout. I think uh, people won't forget, Marcus, to answer your question directly, what's gone before. And I think people will also be, um, they'll be qualified in their um, positivity about the, the rollout. And the reason I say this is because the government made a number of mistakes, including things like cronyism on the distribution of certain contracts and uh, job jobs for a lot of their pals. Now, in this case, they got some, you know, people who brought a kind of Venkap, a hedge fund, uh, an investor mindset to uh, the vaccine program. And their rationale was to gamble, uh, to gamble early and to take some risks on the assumption that you know some of them would hit and it would pay off in the long in the long run now that's actually a very good strategy as it turns out uh, for trying to speed a vaccine rollout through um it's less good uh when you're trying to do things like acquire medically uh medically safe uh, ppe for example so one could argue that the government got lucky by simply continuing its same strategy, misguided as that's been. And on this instance, it's worked very well because it was entrepreneurial, it was uh, acquisitive, it was fast. Um, but at the same time, I mean, that sounds a bit mean-spirited. Look, it, it's been the, the British government has done very well by fair means or foul. And, you know, we could be amongst the first, along with, you know, Israel, potentially we may talk. I know Fernando has some examples from around the world of countries that may surprise on the upside in terms of how they've responded to the to the to the, to the requirements of, of a vaccine rollout. But look, they've, they've done pretty well, but we are not out of the woods yet. I would also add that final caveat. 
Fernando, let's look at the situation internationally. Now, the vaccine rollout in the European Union, for example, has been pretty slow. How are things looking like in Latin America? Well, um, I have to be honest, the majority of Latin America, it's been pretty slow as well, including my home country, Brazil. I think so far, uh, about 2.5% of the population have been vaccinated, which is embarrassing because we had a quite a good trajectory of people being vaccinated for other uh, diseases in the past. But there's one country that I would like to mention here, which is Chile. Uh, They are doing very well. Uh, uh, More than 12% of the population have been vaccinated. Uh, So I think they're one of the top countries as well, together with the UK. why why is that? Well, it's very simple reasons, actually. I mean, I think it's good (laughs) their government, they bought quite a lot of vaccines early and they are still buying other from all sorts of different uh, companies as well. And I have to say, they have a fairly good healthcare system. So, I mean, it's kind of logical that that Chile would be doing uh, well as well. But it it is a little bit embarrassing for the rest of the continent. Well, let's then continue with another news story we have been keeping an eye on today. Thousands of Hong Kong citizens could potentially relocate to the UK through a new travel scheme, which allows British national overseas passport holders the right to live and work in the country. As online application to the scheme opens, we hear more from Hong Kong. Monocle's Karina Choi reports. We were hit by uh, riots and violence that has caused, um, uh, that has endangered not only the safety of this city, but also national security. And that's why the the various actions have to be taken to restore Hong Kong from the chaos that uh, we have seen and people have been suffering. As the chief executive, I'm leading the Hong Kong SAL government to restore Hong Kong from that chaos. And for that, uh, I, I have no regret. That is the duty of the chief executive of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. Over the past two years, China's tightening grip on Hong Kong has rarely left the news cycle. Most notably was last summer, when Beijing imposed a national security law banning treason, subversion, secession, and collusion with foreign forces in Hong Kong. In practice, the law gives China the authority to clamp down on political crimes. But so far, it's been used to stamp out opposition and arrest prominent pro-democracy figures like 24-year-old Joshua Wong and media mogul Jimmy Lai. I always have to worry the consequences of what I do and what I say. So I would, I would never be, be able to do anything. So the only thing for me is to do the right thing and fight on. I'm 72. I don't care what happened to me. It doesn't matter. What matters is that I can still fight on. Before the national security law was put into effect, the British government warned Beijing that the proposed bill would be a violation of the Sino-British Declaration, a joint agreement covering Hong Kong's handover from the UK to China in 1997. Under the declaration, Hong Kong would operate as a semi-autonomous region for 50 years. Securing British citizenship was never a straightforward option for residents in Hong Kong. But in response to Beijing's new legislation, London introduced a pathway that would grant citizens with British national overseas passports a way to obtain full citizenship. On the 1st of July, I announced that we are developing a bespoke immigration route for British nationals overseas and their dependents, giving them a path to citizenship in the UK. And I can update the House that the Home Secretary will set out further details 
on the plans for a new bespoke immigration route for BNOs and their dependents before recess. This bespoke route will be ready by early 2021. In the meantime, the Home Secretary has already given Border Force officers the ability to grant leave to BNOs and their accompanying dependents at the UK border. With this new visa, Hong Kongers could live, work and study in the UK for five years and choose to remain for life. The British National Overseas Passport, more commonly known as the BNO, looks deceptively like any ordinary British passport. The glossy burgundy booklet was first introduced in Hong Kong 10 years prior to 1997, when the city was handed back to China after 156 years of colonial rule. Roughly 300,000 people in Hong Kong are BNO holders, but statistics show that the number of passport renewals have dropped every year. While the BNO offered residents the right to remain in the UK for six months, its utility and benefits were questionable, until now. Britain is part of Hong Kong's history, and Hong Kong is part of Britain's history. We are also part of each other's future. We are confident that the ties between us will not only endure, but will continue to develop. Applications for the BNO scheme opened at the end of January, and over 5,000 Hong Kong residents have applied for the visa so far. These applications have only been accepted in person at Hong Kong's British consulate. But as of tomorrow, that will change, as online applications are expected to attract higher numbers. It comes as no surprise that on the same day the UK government launched the visa, China announced that it would no longer accept the BNO as a valid travel document. But is this move as significant as it seems, when residents in Hong Kong can still travel back to the city on their Hong Kong passports and permanent identity cards? Regardless of the implications on ordinary citizens, the BNO scheme could wedge a greater political divide between the UK and China, whose relationship is already fraught from disputes on Huawei I'm also determined that the UK should not be in any way vulnerable to a high-risk state vendors. So we'll have to think carefully about how we handle that. The repressive treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the political situation in Hong Kong. Can I ask you why people are kneeling blindfolded and shaven and being led to trains in modern China? Why, what, what is going on there? I do not know where you get this video tape. You know, sometimes you have a transmi- uh, transfer of a prisons and a prisoners, you know, in any country. So what happens next? Plus, what does moving to the UK realistically look like for Hong Kongers? Despite the unpredictable political landscape back home, will life abroad be any better? Especially as the UK struggles to bounce back from COVID-19 and hate crimes against Asians in Western countries have risen over the past year. To get a realistic overview of what's happening, I spoke to several Hong Kong residents about the BNO scheme, what motivates their decision to move, and the broader politics of the situation at hand. Over the next three parts of this series, we hear their stories and get closer to finding out just how significant the BNO scheme might be. And the tensions both political and personal, that underpin such a move. 
I'm Karina Cherry from Monocle in Hong Kong. Thanks to Karina for that report. And this week on our other news programme, The Globalist will hear from several residents about the uncertainty surrounding the move and the geopolitical tensions at play. Tom, how clever a move is this from the UK government, giving up to three million Hong Kong residents a chance to settle in prison? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, this has been uh, announced and trailed for for quite some time now. And what we're seeing is the degree of interest in in taking up the the offer, um, it, just in the last few days. And I think it's quite hard to look at this outside of um, ongoing tensions between, you know, obviously the US and China, uh, between China and the rest of the world, to be frank, and also with what the UK is trying to do and thinking of doing in terms of positioning itself as a global player post-Brexit, you know, looking at new alliances. I think what's instructive today is to see that you've got the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab offering to go to Beijing to try and uh, extend a bit of an olive branch that way over tensions that have flared up because of this offer uh, to, to, to Hong Kongers. But I think what the, the, the uptake on the offer, and I think it's something like, what, half a million people who have expressed an interest in coming to live or work or base themselves here for study is that, you know, even with the pandemic and even with all of the geopolitical tensions, rise of nationalism and all the rest of it, people want to, people have an international and an internationalist attitude. They want to reach out around the world. They want to experience other cultures. They want to go to places that are, uh, that set benchmarks in education, in business, in whatever it might be. And I think, it's 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 a good story in as much as it shows that Britain is willing to engage with the world in a positive way and to be open and accommodating. Um, now, again, a cynic may argue that it's it's a bit of gesture politics and it's more about what it's saying to China than about the 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 offer that's being extended to Hong Kongers. But I'm not convinced. I think that there is part of it is obviously some post-colonial responsibility, which we very well should take in this country. Um, but more broadly, I think it offers something of a a window into a future where Britain looks to be one of the promoters of internationalism, uh, of education, of business being done face to face overseas, and and that's probably something that's that's quite positive. That's that's probably my view of it. Fernando, what is your view looking at this post-Brexit global Britain that has been discussed very much? How attractive is is Britain at the moment? Just thinking about your days years ago when you were in Brazil and you decided to move to London to study instead of Paris, New York or or Lisbon, for example. Listen, I've always, you know, admired and I think I always had a, a good relationship with the UK and that's why I wanted to move here. I love the music, the media, even the accent, I must add. Uh, but but I understand that it's different from when I came here. Uh, for me, the UK was very sexy at the time. But now, of course, there's been struggle, Brexit. We hear news that a lot of migrants actually are leaving the UK, especially from the European Union. So actually, I find I, I actually quite like that news that, you know, there are one thing to attract people from Hong Kong, they're highly qualified migrants. I think that's a sign that the UK don't want kind of to be forgotten and to become 
perhaps too nationalistic because that would be sad because I, I didn't came here for that in a way. You, you came here because you thought the UK was sexy. So how, how would you, if you were an advisor to the UK government now, how would you sex up the UK a little bit? Well, with more, with more measures like this, for example, from Hong Kong and perhaps making migrants feel welcome. Uh, I think, of course, they should never forget their pop culture as well, Marcus. We were discussing uh, here, you know, at the time, you know, the, the UK had amazing, great, great music scene. And it kind of still does. I mean, you have even people like Dua Lipa who come from a migrant background. I think those type of people, they're also very important to the UK. But the UK needs to signal as well that it's open for business. It's open to welcome people without kind of prejudice, without kind of this kind of UKIP vibes uh, to do kind of this anti-migrant feeling. So I have hopes in the UK, Marcus. Mm. Tom, do you think do you think Britain should work a bit harder now to attract the right talent from other countries? How is it going with the soft power of this country? Well, look, you know, we're starting from a pretty low base post-Brexit. However, you know, is there even an opportunity? There was a, there's a very interesting piece by Simon Cooper in the FT weekend this past weekend, just talking about how, again, back to that vaccine rollout, you know, Britain has highlighted in at times in the recent months um, how it's still very, very good, even a world leader at certain things. Um, it's very good at marshalling. Uh, finance to uh, make a big difference quickly uh, in a crisis. It's incredibly strong still at R&D. Um, and, and, you know, there's a ch- there is a chance to maybe recalibrate, to specialise a bit more. And if we can retain this um, hard one, I would say, and justified reputation as a leader in, you know, cutting edge R&D, in higher education, uh, as a centre for financial services, you know, there there is no reason why we can't bang the drum a bit for those. But I think, you know, you have to marry up doing, you know, tax breaks and easy financial fixes with something that also tells a bit more of a human story. And that's why I rather like this piece uh, about Hong Kong. There's a very, there's an indelible and incredibly potent and powerful connection uh, that the city state has with with the UK, and I think if there's a powerful human story, I'm sure Fernando, well, Marcus, you're, you're a, 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 a British citizen now uh, as well <laughs> via Finland, of course. You know, there there has to be a human connection, a human story, as well as just good reasons that stack up in terms of a balance sheet. Mm, I agree with that. But now time is short. We have to continue to Fernando's home country of Brazil. Big news from there. Fora de Sao Paulo newspaper in Brazil has just celebrated its 100th birthday. We congratulate the paper, which also is the best-selling broadsheet paper in the country. Fernando, tell us more. How was this milestone celebrated? I think it's quite a special milestone, Marcos, because, I mean, here in Europe, we're kind of used to see some of the traditional broadsheet celebrating 100 years or more, actually, some some cases even more than 200 years. But this is quite new to Brazil in a way, to have a media publication uh, celebrating such, uh, you know, such a date. And I think it is my favorite newspaper. I've been reading since I was nine. I got a subscription from the paper. And I, I remember I used to read about the stock market there. And even though I had no idea what, what exactly was the stock market. But, you know, I think it teach me so much. Uh, and, and it's interesting how it, it, the paper is also innovating quite a lot in the Brazilian uh, media scene. It, you know, it's still quite influential. They have quite a strong digital presence. It, it, it's, it's a newspaper that is kind of alive. It's 100 years, but it keeps doing new things. And I think that's what uh, similar publications should do as well. So it's it's a very important date. 
Tom, what kind of lessons can we learn from this paper, for example? What does it take for papers to survive and blossom so long? And obviously also there is so much talk about papers having to adapt in the changing world. What does that mean in practice? Basically, what I'm trying to ask from you is the recipe for a success that's, that, that, that lasts for long. Well, I'm a funny person to ask. I I used to work at The Independent, which is now a digital-only newspaper. That was the last last place I worked before Monocle, so perhaps I shouldn't uh, qualify to give a view. Um, But Fernando will know this from our conversations on on the stack, and it's a a perennial topic around Midori House, isn't it? This idea, you know, print is dead. People have been pronouncing on that for for decades, it seems. And I think Faye is exactly right when he talks about folio on several counts. Sure, there has to be a, a willingness and a lack of fear about adapting, about, you know, uh, entering the digital domain, about continuing to be relevant. But it doesn't have to come at the cost of uh, your your hard-won editorial principles, um, your your reputation earned over over many years. And having longstanding, I think it's instructive that Folio has been successful. It has a lot of uh, editors and senior staff who are who are lifers there even still quite recently i think a number of the senior management you know have, have worked there for for in some cases decades and that tells you something about the value on uh, uh, heritage tradition the craft if you like of journalism and i think folia and i don't know i mean Faye is far better uh, equipped to answer this than me as he's a uh, you know well he was back back in sao paulo just recently and of, of course he knows the paper inside out but i think it's the marriage of tradition and innovation. And I think too many in media circles think that the two are, are, are uncomfortable bedfellows. But actually, you can be, you can pursue traditional values as a media brand while still being innovative in your in your business approach. I mean, Faye, would you say that that's a, a fair point about why Folly has made it to made it to its centenary. No, absolutely. And one thing that I would add as well, I think, you know, if you are a media company to have ambitions, it's definitely not a problem. Uh, and I saw the newspaper kind of expanding, uh, you know, its print presence, its digital presence. Uh, very recently as well, they've announced, you know, kind of a cooperation with a Portuguese daily Publico because they know a lot of Brazilians live in Portugal. So I think that's also quite smart for a newspaper to do that. In a way, it's kind of what Monaco does. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we saw a space to have a new magazine, Confact, and there is a market for it. And talking about Monocle, many of our listeners may have heard Tom Edwards, for example, on yesterday's edition of Monocle on Sunday. That's where we celebrated our own birthday because Monocle has turned 14. Um, Tom, tell us more about the celebrations and how the day continued. Yeah, it was a great fun program. I would uh, urge listeners to check it out. It was uh, Tyler's regular monocle on Sunday spot, but he uh, was coerced into co-hosting uh, with Andrew Tuck. And there was a bit of a parade of characters from right back from day one, actually, of Monocle. Some who even go further back than that. Um, just sharing highlights. And sure, you know, 14, it's not exactly one of the big anniversaries. And we've still got uh, nine, uh, well, sorry, eight and a half decades to, to match Folio. But I think what was interesting was how... Exactly what Faye just said, you know, this this a commitment to certain kind of values, certain principles that we've stuck to. And Marcus, we should say also Monocle 24, the audio sibling, is going to be 10 years old uh, later this year. Another an, a real another big landmark. And I think that just shows that, you know, there is longevity possible, even in startups. If you kind of stick to your guns, if you've got a clear message. And like Faye said, you know, if you're if you serve an audience that's not only hungry to hear from you, but willing, able and happy to support you by by spending some money to ensure you can keep doing great journalism. It's mad how quickly all those years have passed. 
Tom Edwards and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for joining us today. Also, thanks to our studio managers, Steph Jungo and Sam Impey. I am Marcus Hippi at Midori House in London. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>